Hello, and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. On today's episode, we will be reviewing Mystic Veil. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing. You know, we talked about some of the things we were playing at the convention last week, Dragon and Flagon, Twistosity. Those were a lot of fun, and we've actually had a chance to play Dragon and Flagon again since then. Yeah. But one of the things that we didn't get a chance to talk about, which is a shame because I loved it, was Viceroy. Yes, Viceroy was a lot of fun. It definitely had a bit of a shell shock look to it because when we took it out, it was like a lot of things. You were reading through the rules and it's like so many things going on at once. There was a lot going on. It was kind of like a just a hodgepodge of a whole bunch of different systems. But I think we both agreed that by the time we were done with the game, it was actually pretty straightforward. There's a lot going on and a lot to learn. But then once you grasp how it all fits together, yeah. it's really not that bad. It's almost like a puzzle, I think. Especially because you're building a little pyramid and you're trying to optimize what benefits you get from the people that you put in your power pyramid and then also where you put them because of the colors of the coins yet you also sometimes want to play someone who gives you a certain benefit but a different person might fit better there and you should play them and then you won't have enough money to buy the other person there's a lot to think about but it's a lot of fun because of that i think yeah there's lots of different dimensions you know you mentioned the Okay, so I'm going to want to play this person at their tier three because that bonus is really powerful and it fits Mm -hmm. with the victory condition that I'm going for. But maybe my tier twos are the wrong color, like it just doesn't fit well. Mm -hmm. And so there's all sorts of considerations that you have to go through. And my impression of the game was that maybe one in a million games, you actually get the chance to fit everything together so that all the colors match and you get to put who you want where you want them. But other than that, a big part of the game is really just making trade-offs and deciding what's important at that particular moment. Yes, and for those of you listening who haven't seen Viceroy, the way that the game works is you have cards, there are square cards that have pieces of gems. You have three pieces of a gem on each card. One half gem and two quarter gem. The quarter gems are in the top right hand and left hand corners. The half gem is at the bottom and then you have a person in the middle as well as a few of the benefits. What you have to do is you place these cards next to each other you start with just the bottom row, and then on top of that row, you, you add more people. It's like you know creating your pyramid of power, as they say. When you place a three cards, like two on the bottom and one on top that have the same gem, you get an, a bonus gem for that. And that'll give you, you know, the matching gem is a nice bonus. You get that to use and spend later on to build more people to... You know, not have to spend a turn getting more money and that kind of stuff. Not to mention, they're also worth extra points at the end of the game. Mm-hmm. So there's some in- extra incentive there. But it's a really delicate balance, and I appreciated that about the game. Yeah, and I definitely really enjoyed that. I thought it was a lot of fun. I can't wait to play it again. It's been sitting out at my house. I won it in the play it to win it, which was awesome. Because <laughs> he's Jacob and wins everything. I didn't win anything. We played a couple of play to win games, and he got, what, you get 16 last year? And of course you would get one more this year. Yeah, I got a lot last year. But I mean, this year I was not expecting to get anything. I was actually very surprised when someone came up to me and told me that I won something because it was all of our other friends who were there who were playing only play it to win it games pretty much. And they came out with nothing. Yeah. That's the nature of the beast. It's the way the cookie grumbles. Exactly. I think we're running out of metaphors, but... Yeah, pretty much. So I'll go ahead and go on to something else, which I've been playing. I've been playing a D&D game, finally. 
Welcome back to the fold. Yes, I know. It's awesome. I haven't played as a player in a very long time, especially for any kind of regular D&D. I've played 13th Age about a year ago. It's a lot of fun to actually get to have a character and play that character again and actually interact with the other characters rather than coming at it from a dm's point of view where you are the world versus you know i just have to show up to a session and interact right right like riding a very nerdy bicycle yes exactly it's been a fun campaign so far i've only been there for two sessions they didn't know i was joining so that was like a little surprise to them i like sat down and was like hey and i'm here now too (laughs) so that was good right now We're just getting into the actual story of it, so there aren't that many tales that I can tell, but I am an entertainer, and that's about all I'll tell you about my character, because I don't want them listening and figuring out anything else. Oh, okay. Playing Um, it uh, close to the chest. Yeah, so our DM actually doesn't let anyone else share the character sheets. So you're not supposed to know what classes they are or anything like that, the ability scores and things like that. You figure it out through what they do. Sure. But that's why I'm keeping mine close to the chest. They don't really know mine yet. That's a clever idea. Yeah, I like it. I like that because it lets me be more role-playing versus a, a more meta game. Right. With that, I am an entertainer, so uh, there's another person who is also an entertainer, but we know that he's a bard. He and I put on this amazing show at the end of the last session. I rolled a natural 20, he rolled a 19 on performance checks. That's, uh, yeah, that's a pretty good performance, I should say. Yeah, my character is a dragonborn who is a fire eater, which doesn't seem that special. Uh, until you took a look at that, he's a black dragonborn, so he has nothing to do with fire. Ah. He also has a few spell slots and that kind of thing. So he actually was like conjuring up like these images of dragons and the fire. And like one of our magical people in the party was like adding sound effects through prestidigitation while the other bard was shredding away on his loot. So it, it was quite an epic end of the session where like they just reduced the price of everything in the whole uh, inn. So that was awesome. Nice. And now we're pretty much legendary in the town, so sure, better. Sure, and free booze whenever you want it. Pretty much, pretty much. So it was pretty good. I, I'm really looking forward to the next session. I'll tell you guys about it when it comes to that. Please do, please do. But in addition to the, the role-playing stuff, I know we've been playing a couple other mm-hmm. just regular board games. New Bedford, we mentioned a couple weeks back. Yep. Uh, you had a chance to play that with your roommate, actually, and teach him how to play it. Yeah, and he really enjoyed it, actually. It, it was the kind of thing like we were talking about, oh, we just want a light, quick game. New Bedford, there we go. He's not a fan of any kind of dice game, so like a lot of the quick games always have dice, something like that involved. But New Bedford doesn't really have that kind of mechanic, and it's nice because of that. And there is still enough of a strategy of whether or not you're going to go for the lot of whales, but then you have to actually get the money for it and other things like that, that it actually got him interested in the strategy, not, and it wasn't just like a light game that he blew off, which was awesome. I really like the game. It just solidifies how much I like it. And I think the last game that I wanted to quickly mention was Dark Rock Ventures, another Kickstarter that I got recently. And this one is all about space mining. Okay. It has a really interesting mechanic because this is a dice game, and this is a dice game that my roommate actually did enjoy. Oh. Which means that it has enough balancing mechanisms for the dice. So the way that it works is pretty much there are three different die rolls throughout the turn. You start with the uh, mining dice, which are like, the conditions for mining around the asteroid. 
Okay. And those get rolled at the beginning. So before you place any workers, anything like that, you get to see those two dice. Then you get to place your workers around the mining colony, pretty much. You do that based on what dice came out, because you have to have certain numbers of, uh, matched between your dice that you roll and the mining dice in order to mine in certain places. So you might need a 12 or 2, 8, 10, 6, something like that. Okay, so you sort of create the environment mm -hmm. with the die roll and then send your people into mine mm -hmm. also with a die roll. Yes, you just place the people at that point. So let's say if I'm first and there was a four and a five, for example, the number six and the number eight might be really good choices for me to put it down because it's very likely that something that I roll with my dice will add to those dice to become six or eight. It has to be one of the dice in the middle and one of your own dice. Oh, okay. So it adds to that. And then after everyone's placed, you can also place at other stations and things like that that let you adjust the die roll. One of your people can go into somewhere that gives you a plus one, minus one. Okay. Or a plus three, minus three, or flip this, or mine at the station that you're at, or the two stations to your right or left. Sure, some insurance. Yeah, exactly. You can add that insurance kind of thing. And then after everyone's placed, you roll the neutronium die, which is like this third random die. And that one can be re-rolled by using a certain resource that you can get in the game. After that, at a certain point of the game, you take out these cards that are called the Raider cards. And then if they appear, like you either have to lose a, a resource from your ship or you or your people go back to your ship sure. instead of actually being used. Space pirates. Yeah, pretty much space pirates. Then you roll your rig die, which are your dice that you want to match to the dice in the middle. You try to match those to the mining stations that you're using. And then once you do that, you get those resources. Then you have to try to sell them to get money, and then you get points. Okay, so money is points? Money is the end game? Money is points. Money is the end game. All right. So, yeah, you can also sell your own people and that kind of stuff, where it, it was very interesting. The last game that we played, I tied my roommate in points. But in order to do that, I kicked one of my people out of the airlock for money. Or <laughs> that at least seems that's, excessive. <laughs> that's how we describe it. We let them go, you know, just, you know, gave them pink slip. Ah, and sure. And then sure. got money back. And the tiebreaker was how many people you had. Ah. So I did manage to lose that game because of that. But in points, I was tied. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been tied. You were so. close. Close, yeah. but no cigar. Exactly. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Kind of a traditional worker placement with a little bit of a twist. Yep, exactly. Which it was really nice. Look forward to our review of that sometime in the future. Yeah, down the line. Yep. Well, cool. That's a look at what we've been playing lately. This week on What's New, I have a lot of really cool games to talk to you guys about, so I'm going to start with one that I got to play at Megacon this year. That game is Tales from the Taverns, Legends of Goblins Past. This is made by Vile Genius Games and is on Kickstarter right now. This game is about being a bard and putting together a tale of goblins past. The way the game works is really cool. You get to make a sentence that is your tale. So you start with having the hook, then you have your rising action, and then you have your climax. And there is a grid that they use that have different topics uh, for each of the three of them and you'll put that in uh, from your hand which has the different cards that have the different parts it's a lot of fun it's a very silly game because you're making up these really funny tales as if you were a bard and you're trying to make the most epic one out of everyone's 
then you have these really fun things that are like interrupt. You play them on top of someone else's card. So let's say someone says, and once there was a dragon, and then you play an interrupt that cancels that card, and it says instead, my brother's mother's sister's cousin's great-grandfather's nephew's roommate was there, and that is not the way that it happened. And so you have all these really funny interrupts, these funny stop cards, and it's just really silly fun. I love the game, especially since it plays two to ten players. I got to play a game that I think was about five or six people. When we were playing, it felt really quick, really fun. The rounds went by quickly. Everyone was trying to accomplish a different goal in the game as well. When you do finish a tale, so like one full sentence of three cards, you have the hook, rising action, and climax. Once you finish that, you get to put an epic embellishment on it. So you draw from the epic embellishment deck, you get some more coin for that, and everyone else loses a coin for buying a round of drinks for the whole tavern since your tale was completed and so great. It's a lot of fun. I highly, highly recommend backing them on Kickstarter right now. I'm really looking forward to getting this in my hands and playing it. The next game that I wanted to talk about is also one that I got to play at MegaCon, and this is Pwns. So P-W-N-S, Pwns. Now this is a very silly game as well, but I think the art style is sillier than the game itself. If this game had any kind of other theme rather than just silly characters, I think that this would actually be a pretty intense fighting game because the way that it works is you have a team of little people who look like if you've ever seen the comic Poland Ball mixed with the animation of South Park. So they, they're really funny caricatures and they're fighting. And you set up this board that I believe is like a six by six or nine by nine and it has terrain. So you have dirt, you have grass, you have dry grass, you have water and all these other things. And when you set it up, the terrain actually has effects. You can walk further on ground than you can in, in water, and you don't want to fall in water, or you'll get hurt, or just lose movement and that kind of thing. And if you're on dry grass, for example, and someone throws a fire spell, then the dry grass burns and turns to dirt afterwards, while anyone who's on there gets hurt by the fire and all that kind of stuff. So there are really cool environmental effects, and the mechanics themselves, I think, are way deeper than the game seems from the outside. And I really appreciate that because personally, I'm not the biggest fan of that kind of art style, but I definitely think that the game itself is enough quality to look at Kickstarter and try to get this game actually made. And that's what's new for this week. Alright, now it's time to take a trip back to the wild for our review of Mystic Veil. This is one of our favorite games. We've talked about it before, but we haven't given it a proper review, so let's jump in. Yeah, let's start with a little bit of an overview of the game. So many of the mechanics here are going to be familiar to those of you who know deck building games, because this is technically a deck building game, but it has a really interesting twist. And that twist is that you're not adding cards to your deck in order to build it, you are building your cards. So you're adding different types of upgrades and things like that to your cards using these clear cards, pretty much, into these card sleeves, and you're making a card that is very unique every time. 
You begin the game with mostly blank cards in your deck. You have a 20 card deck, and most of them don't do anything. You just have them, and they're just gumming up your deck until you upgrade them. You do have a few cards that have either decay or mana tokens on them. And the mana is how you are able to get more cards and more upgrades, and the decay is what actually limits you in how large your hand can be. Right, and that's really like the the core mechanic of how each turn plays out for you, because you start each turn with cards from your deck laid face up in what's called your field. Mm -hmm. At the end of every turn, you go through your prep phase where you lay out your field until you have three decay symbols showing, two in your field and one on deck. Yeah. And then once you have that, you're ready for the next turn in which you push, essentially, cards from the top of your deck into your field and then turn the next card over. Mm -hmm. If at any time you have four decay symbols showing, you spoil and you go immediately to the discard phase without an opportunity to spend your mana on advancements or your symbols on veils in the late game. So it has this really cool push-your-luck aspect to it. And I really like that because you can also think about how many decay tokens you have total in your deck because you can get more and you can also cancel them out in certain ways. You can count like out of the 20 cards, I know that eight of them have, uh, have decay tokens. And I have already six of them in my discard pile and I'm showing the other three, that means the rest of my deck is good. Okay, then you can keep drawing or any variation thereof. I really think that that's a really cool mechanic because you can push your luck, but even then you're sometimes working with the probabilities. Like I know that one of the three cards that I have left here is a decay token, but I really need that mana that's on top of the deck. So I'm going to go ahead and push and push that one in there. And then you're risking it. You have like a 33% chance of drawing the wrong card. And then it happens. You draw the wrong card and you spoil it. And you're like, oh, come on. I have never been terribly proficient at counting cards, so mm -hmm. I have some friends who, whenever we play you know, Ascension or whenever we play Dominion, yeah. any sort of traditional deck building game, they just have it all in their head. They're like, okay, I have this many cards, I have this probability of drawing into a gold and getting what I need. I'm like, what are you doing? But with this, mm -hmm. it's just really straightforward. You're always going to have 20 cards. You're always going to start out with, I believe it's nine decay symbols in your deck, mm -hmm. so you're always going to know what the baseline probability is for yep. spoiling and then you can add certain cards so some advancements actually have an additional decay symbol on them so you yep. can increase your risk versus some advancements actually have a growth symbol which is green instead of red and that counteracts one decay symbol so you can really push your deck towards okay i want to be more powerful even if that means i'm you know either going to spoil more often or i'm going to have to be more careful with my pushes mm -hmm. or you can go for you know what i'm going to manage my decay so well that i can push my entire deck and never spoil yeah and we've had people play both ways i think my roommate last time we played went through his entire deck and actually at one point i think had his entire deck on the field i think that's true yeah all of his decay tokens being canceled out or at least less than four of them being actually viable decay tokens I think that it's really good in that aspect. The rest of the game itself actually plays very similar to that of a regular other deck building game. You're just buying more advances and most of the advancements for your cards do give you more victory points. So it's the same thing, adding victory points into your deck in other games, like whether it's Ascension or Dominion or something like that. 
all of the cards do have some kind of effect. And it's very much um, an Ascension-style victory path. Advancements that have a victory point value in the bottom corner, they say at the end of the game you tally this up and it's worth one point or it's worth two points or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Versus on the other hand, you have some advancements that get slotted into your card and then whenever you play that card, that Mm -hmm. is whenever it hits the field, you take that many victory chits from the pool. That's the game end condition. Once all of those are gone, and it's it's a fairly low number, I believe it's 23 for a two-player game, scaling up to 33 for a four-player game. Yes. But the games do tend to last quite a long time because those advancements that cause you to take chits are few and far between, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people are going to spend a lot of time accumulating mana and kind of getting their deck in order before they pivot to focusing on those. Exactly, and there's one other type of card that we haven't mentioned yet, which is the Veil cards. And these are purchased through the use of these symbols that you have on certain cards. You have to match the symbols to the Veils themselves in order to purchase them. These are permanent cards that stay out in your station that give you a certain benefit. So they can give you an extra mana every turn. Right, and in my experience playing the game, there's kind of always this sort of division between phases of the game. And during the A phase, people are really focusing on advancements that give mana. They're focusing on advancements that give more power to the deck and more just ability to purchase further advancements, kind of Mm -hmm. an engine building type of thing. And then people tend to pivot towards, okay, well, I've got a lot of mana. I'm consistently buying things every turn, which at the beginning may not actually happen. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to say, all right, now I'm going to be on the lookout for things that give symbols. Like you mentioned, there's four different symbols. There's brown, green, yellow, and then purple, which is actually a wild and can be spent as any of the other three types. Mm -hmm. So they say, all right, I've got enough mana. I can reliably buy things every turn. I'm going to focus on symbols now and start getting some of these really powerful veils because there's tier one veils, Mm -hmm. which tend to cost about two symbols, maybe three symbols per. And then there's the tier two veils, which are much more powerful. Those can give you up to, I believe, eight victory points is the most valuable. Mm -hmm. And those cost anywhere between four and six symbols. So there's kind of this duality in terms of the game. And then again, some people have won the game without ever purchasing a single veil because they just keep focusing on mana and they get to the really powerful advancements and use those power of victory. Exactly. So there are definitely a lot of different ways that you can get to victory and there are a lot of different strategies in the game. I think that one of the most interesting parts is actually building your your cards. So each card can have three abilities on it. Some of them start with abilities, like we said, the the ones that have the mana or the ones that have the decay. Both of those already have one of their slots taken up. What you have to do is you have to match the cards that come out not only to the placement uh, or like the card that you want to do it. So, for example, if you had the bottom slot already taken up by something, let's say, decay, and you found a growth card that you wanted to put onto that card so that it cancels out the decay, but it's also on the bottom third, you can't put it down. So you have to use that on a different card, and it can only be on the cards that are currently out on the field, so you can't like, go through your discard pie, you can't use the cards in your deck, anything like that. Building the actual cards is very interesting, and there's a very big strategic aspect to that itself. Absolutely. And even more so, you've got all these different types of advancements and you actually have multiple tiers. So there's tier one, tier two, tier three. They just generally increase in power. But within each tier, you've got different types of advancements that each have. There tends to be about 
three to four of each advancement, mm-hmm. and they tend to be in different slots. So, for example, Cleansing Rain yes. is one of the advancements, and there are three copies of that advancement. There's one where it's in the top slot, one where it's in the middle slot, and one where it's in the bottom slot. Mm-hmm. So in addition to having to figure out, okay, I want to put this on this top slot because it's available, you're also just really limited in the number of those that you or anyone else who's playing can take. So your deck is going to really be responsive to what's available to purchase mm-hmm. versus what somebody else takes from you versus what maybe has been taken out. Because actually, at the beginning of the game, during setup, some of the tier one advancements are removed and you don't play with those. Exactly. So you always have a little bit of a variability in the deck. So you might be waiting for this one kind of advancement that all three of them have been taken out of the deck. Or there's only one and it's in the wrong spot for you. Or you just don't have the blank card that you need that's out on your field in order to purchase that. There's a lot of variability that that adds to the game, I think. Even though you're only taking out a few of the cards, you never know which ones and they can really impact your strategy. The interesting part also is that when you're done with that bottom row and like every card in that has been bought, you start filling it up with the cards from the second row or the second tier. And so that really helps the transition of going from the lower tier cards to the middle tier and higher tier cards because it it reveals more of those. Exactly. One thing that I know we both wanted to talk about was the quality of the the pieces themselves Mm -hmm. because obviously if you're building cards, that's something that's logistically difficult to come up with. But I think they handled it really, really well. They give you sleeves. Yes. that fit the oversized cards and every box is going to come with enough sleeves to sleeve all four decks mm-hmm. plus a couple of spares in case you lose them mm-hmm. and those just slide right in they work beautifully the advancements themselves that get slotted in are nice plastic but they also come with a sort of thin plastic sheet on top like an yeah. adhesive except it's not sticky yeah and so you can kind of play with those for a couple games, and they even say in the rule book this is actually designed to sort of peel off over time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a really good way on the, the production side of it to say, look, we've got this incredibly complicated system, but we didn't just do this willy-nilly. We put a lot of thought into it, yeah. and we're going to make sure that those cards are protected and that they're high quality. I've actually talked to Kathleen, our friendly local game store owner from Labyrinth, about the game and she was saying how out of all the games of mystic veil that she had there was i think one that had a defective cut or something like that in the cards and she contacted the the game manufacturers and they immediately took that one back sent her a new one for free you know they were extremely responsive with that because they really want this to work that's fantastic so the customer service on that has been awesome if anyone has played this game and has had that problem I would highly recommend reaching out to wherever you got that from or the directly to the manufacturer themselves and I'm sure that they'll be really willing to help you get any kind of replacements, anything you need. From what I know, it, she's had a lot of turnover of this game and only one of the boxes has had this kind of problem. So it seems to be a very small issue and the game components themselves seem to be of a really, really nice high quality. Well, that's fantastic to hear. Mm-hmm. So. What are your final thoughts on it? Final thoughts, I think I'm going to go with a buy it, especially after hearing that anecdote about the customer service and the support that they mm-hmm. offer. This is a game that you can buy with a high degree of confidence. One, that it's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. Two, that it's going to be well put together. 
and three that you can have a lot of fun with. So yeah. it's a buy it from me. I'm also going to go with buy it, and I'm going to add another reason to that, which is how beginner-friendly this game is. And this is something we didn't really talk about earlier, but I just wanted to mention it. This is, I think, the game that if I were to teach deck building, I would be teaching with this game. There are so many aspects of it that really lend themselves to showing a beginner how the deck building aspects work. Because first off, you only have 20 cards. You know that you can tell, talk to people and say, you know, okay, you have 20 cards, you have nine decay tokens, how many do you have in your discard pile and all that. That starts teaching the card counting and deck awareness part of the game. But then you also have the really neat part, which is the fact that you don't really have a hand. It's all out in your field on the board. So if you're teaching someone new, if you're a good person, you can go ahead and look over and say, look, you have this, 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 and this, and you can use this to buy you know, this upgrade, and this one might be useful for you or something like that. And that's without cheating, whereas in a lot of the other deck building games, if people are brand new to it and they have their hand, you don't really want to be looking at their hand because that's just, you're going to know what they're going to have. It's going to feel like a little bit weird. In this game, it's just right there. And you're talking through it. You can just give them advice, take advice, anything like that. The game mechanics themselves are actually pretty simple because you just, whatever's on the card, you read it and do it. So I will 100% say that this is a buy it from me. Great beginner game, but also a really good game for those who enjoy deck building well those are all great points thank you for joining us on our review of mystic veil we hope you enjoyed it and we hope you buy the game as you can probably tell we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of dragon's demise be sure to check out our interview with rob davio up now and be on the lookout for more coverage from washington in the coming weeks be sure to join us on next week's episode of dragon's demise when we review arboretum